You're listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I'm Brian Benham. And I'm Greg Porter. And today we're joined by a special guest, Tony Rouleau, who is of Hillview uh, Wood and Metal. I almost said it wrong there. Hillview Wood and Metal. And Tony is a tool maker that has made one heck of a name for himself among the uh, makers in our community. So Tony, first off, thanks for hopping on the show. I know you're busy in the shop making all kinds of cool tools to share with people and you've got a few prototypes going. So it's always nice uh, when folks like you can take a little time out of their day to share some thoughts with us. It's good being with you guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, I was trying to think back to, I think we've only met one time in person and that was up in New York, maybe uh, over in, was it over in Brooklyn or maybe just east of Brooklyn? Is that Long Island that gets east of Brooklyn? Uh, Flushing Meadows. That's Flushing where Meadows. the, that's where the, the yeah, because I met you and Tom there. Yeah, me and Tom. And yep. uh, it was, uh, oh, shoot, what did they call that? The, the, so Maker Maker Fair. Maker Fair. I was trying yeah. to say Maker yep. Meetup. But Maker Fair, it was really cool. I think there was a whole bunch of us up there with Jimmy DeResta. And it seemed like uh, Laura Kampf was there. And uh, yep. Giaco was there, if I remember right. Yes, yep. And April Wilkerson maybe was there too. So it was a, it was a really good group of, of well-known makers and holy cow, uh, I came out of there. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Tony mentioned Tom. Tom is another machinist and Tom does a ton of work for me. So Tom does all the production work on my guitar tools that I make. So he makes uh, probably about 10,000 parts a year for me. So it's a lot. Uh, and Tom's been a machinist his whole life. So it was really great to kind of put some some good minds together. And I sat on the sidelines as somebody who who is a complete hack, just listening to other people talk, but uh, really a cool conversation that week. Sorry, there was no question there. I just, <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, well, so, so I think probably to be fair to, to the audience who may not know who you are, they've probably seen your tools in a lot of YouTube videos, they show up. Uh, in a lot of Instagram posts, they show up. But can you tell us a little bit about the tools you make and how you got started making them? I guess I'm known. It's kind of weird to say. I guess I'm known for uh, of this small, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's an infill block plane and uh, a, a, these brass and steel double squares that I make. That's really what my bread and butter is. I've done a handful of other tools, but that's what's mostly out in the ether is you'll you'll see a lot of the squares pop up you know in different youtube videos and stuff and it's kind of surreal still to this day it was funny i was looking i was just sorting through drawers today and i had these little stickers made up and back when i started my company i put since 2015 and i thought that was just corny and i put it on as a joke and i'm like well that was at some point that's going to become something you know, maybe 2025, it'll be, you know, just something interesting. Well, we're <laughs> almost about. there. Yeah. yeah. The first infill plane that I saw from you, I think was for a maker gift exchange. Is that yes, right? Yeah. Sorry. I got sidetracked. Um, there was a, a one of the f first like maker podcasts, you know, there's wood talk and there was a couple others, but there was one called MakerCast. John Berard hosted it, and he interviewed a bunch of different people. And 
he had approached me like a month or two after I did mine and said he was going to do a big giveaway at the end of the summer. And he was having guys like Mark Spagnolo and Jimmy and, and a, a bunch of other guys just donating stuff, you know, whether it was t-shirts or 3d printers, it was all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm like, what am I going to do? So I was like, and at the time I'd been making branding iron. So for in the maker community. So that's how kind of my name was getting out, but I'd always wanted to make a plane because I'm a machinist during, for my day job, but at home I was a hobby woodworker and that's what I did to, you know, relieve stress and just keep from going stir crazy. So I'd always wanted to make a plane. So the first couple months of summer, I just sat and just, I'm not a, I rarely draw things out on paper. I, it, it, it festers in my head and I'll just constantly pick away at it go I want to change this I want to change that and usually like when I make a tool the first one the prototype will be like 95% of what the production is I will change a few things to make it a little easier to manufacture or somebody will say hey what if you did this you know I always accept constructive criticism and a lot of times you know I'll just tweak things so I made this plane and it just kind of took off from there. And I believe you were in the first batch. I think you were one of the first You're yeah. number seven, right? If You're, I still remember. You've got a great memory, Tony. Uh, I, I guess my side of the story from the customer experience is I can remember following Tony on Instagram. And I think you were even doing some videos on YouTube at the time as well. If A little I remember, bit. Right. Yeah, Just a little bit. Small stuff, but it was like, you know, it was a small community and some really cool folks. And there was a Facebook group that we all kind of chit chatted in. And I saw the pictures leading up to that very first plane getting made. And it just, the detail in it uh, and, and sort of that, the way it was made, I can remember sending you a message, uh, something along the lines of, Tony, if you ever make another one of these, I want to buy it. I don't care what it costs. Just tell me. And I want one of those. And, and it was as a tool user, I've got all of my favorites, right? Some of them came handed down. Uh, my grandfather was a gunsmith. My uncle was also a gunsmith and a machinist. My wife's uh, two grandfathers. One of them was a machinist for TWA and another was a sheet metal mechanic. And I have all their old tools. And so my tools, most of them don't come from Home Depot or, you know, online or anything like that. They, they, they have a lot of, they have something behind them. And, and I always feel like uh, the way I've always said it is when I use my grandfather's tools uh, or my wife's grandfather's tools, I feel like they're in the shop with me. And it's, it's just this really cool thing. And when I saw your tool or saw, saw your plane, it went through my head that this is something I feel like I need in my toolbox because there's going to be somebody somewhere down the line that's going to get this thing and it's going to be like they're working with me in the shop and that's going to be mine and they're going to know it because it's so much different and i did i, I got number seven when you said the first uh batch hey i'm thinking about making these and i can remember at the time uh money was tight and everything else and i'm not gonna talk about your prices or anything else but i i remember what it cost i was like man that's gonna be hard to pay for you know it, it's not that i didn't have the money it 
it was an extravagant expense, but it was like, no, no, it is worth every penny because of what it is. And I see people that have your tools that put them on a shelf and never use them. And I cry inside a little bit because your plane is my number one plane. When I reach for a block plane, I grab yours and it is so well-tuned. It's so well put together and it's so solid. There's just enough weight to it that it works well. And it's like, you're missing out. If you're not using this tool, take it off of your shelf and start using it because it's awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of plane makers that it's like 50-50. And I don't really even consider myself a, a good plane maker because I always get asked about making smoothers and stuff like that. And I don't feel that I have enough knowledge intimately of higher end uh you know, working with different frog angles and stuff like that to really tackle. Could I copy like a Lee Nielsen and put my own spin on it? Yes, but I, it just doesn't, it doesn't interest me. But that block plane, um, there was a lot of, a lot of fussing. You know, one thing I always fretted over was the mouth opening. <clears throat> That's one of those things that certain plane makers are like, you should be able to slide a piece of paper through and that's it and then i got to thinking i'm like well this is a block plane this is made to put chamfers on edges of boards you know one thing it really is really excels at and i didn't discover it until after i made it was it's really it works really well on end grain i don't know mm -hmm. if it's the heft of it and the weight but it just slides through end grain really nice and even though the mouth is a little it, it i basically just went through like three or four block planes kind of took an average and tightened it up just a little bit. Over the years, I brought it in just a little bit, but I've just always focused on, it's a general purpose plane, but you talk about people not using it. One of my favorite pictures is, is Jay Bates was one of the first guys in the batch. And he was one of the guys that I always say that kind of helped push my name out there. He did like an unboxing video and it's like, it, it just, it kind of vaulted me into, you know, where I, you know, basically planes are sold out every year. I don't, there's, I used to try to keep a waiting list, but it's just so long that I, uh, I ended up going to a lottery system. Yep. So Jay was out in Oklahoma. There was a, a woodworking event out there. It was real homegrown thing, but I remember seeing I saw my pl the plane that I made him sitting on a workbench and the plane is like almost green with tarnish except for these two spots where your hand goes and they're just mirror and to me that was one of the that showed me that that plane got used and abused all weekend and it was just and it still looked good but it was just it was being used you know yeah cuz you got like like Izzy will use his, but Izzy had his engraved by Chen Bauer, who does amazing yeah. engraving. But that thing's kind of turned into more of a an art piece. But he will use it. He will break it out. Go ahead, Brian. I was so, just going to put this up here for people who don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, so that's a beautiful plane. So you talked a little bit about uh, developing the, the frog mouth, but how did you develop the the shape? of the general shape how did you decide the style of it it just kind of i don't i don't really have a certain 
style. There probably is probably subconsciously there's a style, but it's more, it's just organically, uh, it's more organic to me that I just kind of played around with, I knew I wanted an infill in the front and I just, <clears throat> I think I had to, that one, I actually, I'm contradicting myself, but that one, I actually had to CAD draw a little bit to get the, the curves and everything. And people, uh, Dan Harju, I don't know if you guys know him. He's a wonderful bed maker. Right? Yeah. yeah. He says it has a, it has very feminine curves to it. Just to put it kind of nonchalantly, <laughs> but, and, and it does, it, it has that vibe to it. And that, I think that's what, like a lot of my other tools, I tend to, I'm not a, I'm not a huge gun person, but I really, I grew up around, you know, I'm in upstate New York, which might as well be Tennessee or Georgia. It's just very country vibe here. I, my house is built in a cow field. So guns were always around me, but they were, you know, they were, they're not more of the guns that are now with the synthetic stocks and everything. They were the blued metal. They were beautiful brass stock or uh, walnut stocks. Sometimes they had gold and brass inlays. They were just, they were works of art. They were functioning art. And that's really what you see it a lot more in my squares, my bevels, that that's the vibe that I, I tend to go towards. The knurled knobs. I think, I think they're second to none, Tony. Thank you. (laughs) That beautiful inlay too. I'm, I'm curious how you, machine that and made the wood fit what your process was well what it it's uh it's it's cheating it's cnc um okay could i do that by hand probably do you want to pay me to do it by hand no one wants to pay probably me to not. do that by hand that's the thing but uh it's just i've i've got over 25 years experience in cnc machining so that's where a lot of my processes really get refined and with the brass, what I traditionally do is I cut the pocket for the wood, and then I have someone choose the wood. I stabilize the wood, and uh, the only wood I won't, I can't really stabilize. So there's two: is African blackwood and desert ironwood. They just won't take the the resin. But uh, I'll cut the inlay piece in the block, and then I'll just uh, saw it on the bandsaw, just rough. So when I glue it in, it sits anywhere from a quarter inch to a sixteenth proud. And then what I could do is I have, I've actually built a dedicated machine now, but I basically put a belt sander on a surface grinder. Uh, just if you're not familiar with machining, uh, a surface grinder is basically think of a bench grinder that's sitting above a table that can move left and right. So what I did is I replaced the grinding wheel with a belt sanding a belt so now i can hold the vice the the square and a vice and i move the table left and right and bring the belt to it and i can sand that almost where it's flush it's it's probably about less than a 64th high then what i do is i have a bunch of granite stones that are flat on my workbench that have different grits and this is where a lot of my time is spent is I, I hand sand everything, hand fit everything. The CNC can only get you so far. You know, it's the, I think that's where, that's where I try to, I try to shine over some of the other tool makers and, and even bigger guys is, is the handwork that's involved. 
and the care. Yeah. So I so just for people that are listening that may not understand stabilization, that's to prevent it from expanding and contracting a lot, so that way it stays locked into inside the brass piece. Yeah. What it is is you put. It, I think it was originally designed for like punky woods, like spalted maple and and stuff. What you do is you you put it in a vacuum chamber, and it's a very uh, very thin resin that when the vacuum pulls in, it pulls the resin in to the wood, and then you take it out and you bake it at a low temperature. I think it's like 220 degrees or around there Fahrenheit. You cook it for a couple hours, and it basically, theoretically, it turns it into a block of plastic, so it can't really move. And that that's how I can, you know, it, it, it just, I've never really had issues with uh wood movement because it's such a small piece of wood but this just really it 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 improves the resiliency of the wood and the fit and finish is better because of it. it's just a better product so uh when you're when you're hand sanding the area the transition between the wood and the metal uh when i've ever i've done things like that i have problems with uh the metal getting into the wood fibers is that uh is that something that resin will help prevent or is that it does uh... the, the 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 i have to be very careful with maple if you if i do like a, a curly maple you'll get that it'll have that dirty look a lot of times what i'll do is i'll take the square body and i'll wrap just a little bit of painter's tape if you saw when greg was holding it up where the logo is that's where the most brass is and also when I do custom engraving on those, I'll do people's logos. Sometimes the engraving's only one or two thou deep. So if I get aggressive, I can wipe that or change it. So it's a re it it's not as complicated as it sounds. It's just developing a feel for it. But what I'll do is I'll have to keep that sandpaper very clean. And then what I'll do is every so often I'll wipe that area down with mineral spirits to keep that grip from moving into the from the brass powder and grit from moving into the wood but it. it is controllable and i think you're right i think the stabilization helps because it doesn't there, there's really no pores anymore because it's filled with the resin so i mean obviously maple isn't a porous wood but still they are there you know yeah and being a light colored wood it probably shows yeah. up more yep so i want to move a little bit away from let's call it technique and design and talk about your shop a little bit and how that grew over time. And I think I know a little bit of your backstory in terms of how you got started making, let's just talk about the first batch of block planes that you made. Did you do that? Your shop is in your basement, if I mm -hmm. remember correctly. Yep. And you're using uh, some Tormach machines. And then I think you've got some older uh, Bridgeport style mill, or do you have? Yep. Um, right now I have a Tormach 770 series three CNC milling machine. It's like the middle series of their offering. I just got, well, it was, it, it's about, it's about a year and a half old. I got the, the Tormach CNC lathe, the slant pro. I bought a jet. I have a jet knee mill, which is just a Bridgeport knockoff. And then I have my pride and joy is, uh, is a sharp tool room lathe, which is, uh, it's basically a copy of a hard inch tool room lathe, which they're just, they're these tiny tanks. Like the, the, the lathe is, is only, 
I think it has an eight inch swing and it's like 19 inches between centers and it weighs more than the bridge pour. It's just this, instead of having two rails, like a traditional lathe runs on, it's a whole, it's about an eight inch wide solid dovetail that's ground. And it's just, it's overkill for what I do, but they are so smooth and they're just, they're just precision machines. And I was lucky. I have the, the place where I worked, where I'll talk about why I started the planes. Uh, my supervisor actually saw it in an auction or it, uh, a, a machine dealer was selling it. And I got it for like these, these lays sell new. I don't know what they'd sell for now, but you know, four years ago, they sold for 36 grand new. And, and it's just, it, it's, you know, it's not a big lay, but I got it for a little more than quarter of the price and it just the problem is is unless you have a really good reason to use it what i think was is a shop bought it nobody used it they're like just get rid of it that's how i inherited it but uh when i started with the block planes i had been working for a couple years at where i work now it's been over 10 years at a, a it's a small job shop called Payne and packard machinery we do a lot of paper industry um, that's pretty big in this area. Uh, tiny bit of aerospace, a lot of medical, um, and anything that walks through the door. Well, one of the things that the owner does is he he allows us to do what a lot of machines call government jobs, which are just just after hours work. And his, and which that's really rare because the machines that I run and and most any machinist run nowadays are anywhere from. 50,000 to 500,000 and more, you know, like the, the five axis CNC that I run daily, that's like 250, 300,000, but he would allow us to use them because his thoughts were the more we use them, the better we're going to be. And that's really where I, I had, uh, I started doing the, the majority of the machining was after hours. And what that allowed me to do was the first thing I, I, I had a, a small jet drill, like the drill mill, which they're, they're okay. They're fine for what they are, but they're not a real, they're, I don't want to say it's not a real machine, but it's, it's not an industrial machine. And then I had a, a jet uh, 13 by 40 metal lathe, which, which is a good lathe. It's just that this, this one was sexier. So I had to go with it. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's like having the Corolla or having the, Porsche 911 you know there's the Corolla does just fine but so so what that allowed me to do is I was able to buy the jet mill I got that in then I went I went to try to finance the Tormach which that was a a whole thing in and out of in and of itself but I got that and then I was able I, I got the lathe and I that's the one thing that this whole tool thing has done it's allowed me to to just you know build basically a hundred percent this year will be the first year that all tools that I've made will be made here in my shop. And cause there used to be a time where I would, I would utilize the machines on like a weekend, like the, uh, the rear bed of the block plane. There's a lot of different things going on there where I had a program where the five axis would cut the angle it would drill the hole in the back it would do this it would do that and i'm trying to weed myself off because there is hope that someday this is like my i want to be tom 
Yeah. I just want to sure. do my own thing eventually. So I'm so this year is going to be the year that I'm I'm hopefully do 100% in my shop in the basement. And it's a walkout basement. So there was uh, you hear all these stories about guys cutting holes in their floors to lower bridge ports and all that stuff. No, I have a nice walkout basement. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it's still a pain in the neck to oh pull yeah. A, pull a, a 770 around the corner and into yeah, the basement. The, 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 when we got when I got the bridge port, I was really intelligent and I ordered it at the end of January. And it was just it was we we get good winners up up where I am. I'm about an hour north of Albany, New York, right on the edge of the Adirondacks, and it's just cold it was the wind was awful and i have a bucket tractor and the bucket tractor theoretically could pick it but the bucket was up so high that i lost the mechanical advantage of the hydraulics so it would just sit there and i've got like four guys standing around with their hands in their pockets and you notice guys are disappearing and they're all congregated in my shop just trying to stay warm and we ended it it ended up you know, I swallowed my pride, took it apart in pieces, brought it in. But so I vowed every machine after that, it's at least got to be 50 degrees. Yeah, no, <laughs> I think it's super smart and dry, right? Yes. Keep the, keep the tractor moving instead of sliding. Yep. Well, I guess my point for asking that question, and I think a lot of us go through this as we're, we're building something, you know, you start off with these big ideas and you have big dreams about what you want to do. And sometimes the reality is there's, unless you're <laughs> born a millionaire, there's, there's no way to, to get into doing what you want to do other than asking people for favors or finding another way to get it done on somebody else's with someone else's resources. That doesn't mean you have to be a freeloader all the time, but it means that you can't always expect to, you know, you see so many comments on people's YouTube videos. Oh, that'd be great if I had, you know, $400,000 worth of equipment in my basement. And it's like, well, most of us didn't start out that way, but, yeah. but we started to build with a small thing and then we replicated it and replicated it. And then eventually you're you like you said, you're going to build your next batch hundred percent there at uh, Casa de Rouleau. And, and, and I, I expect that from a from a cash flow perspective, when you're no longer having to buy thirty and forty thousand dollar machines every year, then it starts to become something that's sustainable that you can do and support a family on and and do all the things that you need to do to pay the bills. Yeah, and that's that's the thought right now too. Is is the majority of my revenue goes back into the business because I do have a full time job. There's times I get grumpy about that, but I've stuck to my guns and. And that's that's the plan. Uh, certain machines, I don't know if the longevity will be there, but I think you know, in in the long run, if that's the plan, is is to try to at least at least with the the manual machines, they'll be my you know as long as I take care of them, they'll be my forever tool. I'll have those for you know, and. Uh, Cause I always tell my wife, Mackenzie, I'm like, you're going to have, when I'm gone, you're going to have one hell of a garage sale. <laughs> I'm like, I'm leaving. I, I'm just thinking about all the, the pain in the butts just to get this stuff in here. And I was like, well, it's somebody else's problem. So, but yeah, but that's the other thing too, is there's equity here. And you know, that's, that's another thing 
you know, and, and I, I have stepchildren. I don't know if they, sometimes they show interest and stuff, but I don't want to be, I, I tell people, I don't want to be the little league dad of machining. Like you got to go down and cut a interference fit for a bearing or, you know, scream at the kid while they're trying to, you know, bore a hole or something. Yeah. So. My kids only show interest when they need something made for themselves. <laughs> well, that, that at least it's something. And that's how, I mean, I, when I did woodworking, I, I did a lot of like a lot of scroll saw work, but it wasn't until like I need, I was building this house, you know, I need, you know, I need a coffee table. Well, I want to make a coffee table. So I, you know, I, I bought pre-made legs from Lowe's, but then the whole rest of it I made, you know, and that, that, I think that's what really fuels people to get into hobbies like that, you know, and, and that's sometimes necessity is, does that. Well, and I've seen you, so I'm, I'm going to guess that, you know, John Grimsmo. I know uh, we don't, I've never spoken to him, but I, I know he's that that man has done very well for himself. Well, and I guess what, what I look at in John's world, and I don't know that I've ever idolized anyone for any reason, but, but I admire when somebody takes things to the next level and I feel like that's his entire business is this next level knife making and he does it very well, but he, he decided, and he started off in his garage with a grizzly conversion, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, made his own CNC machine out of something that was, was just a mill and then added a Tormach and then went from Tormach and now he's into Kern at a million bucks. Oh my God, I know. I think he just got his second one and, you know, I'm like a little schoolgirl looking. Oh sure, I, yeah, I know just, it's 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 impressive. Just, but again, I saw an Instagram story. I think it was this morning or whatever. It was twelve thirty at night, and he's playing with his new CMM, his measuring machine. And it's like, if you're gonna do that, that's what you got to do, you know. And he's yeah. Well, and I guess what my point is not to not to sit and drool about uh, John Grimsmo's tools. Uh, although <laughs> I I do look and and I think, gosh. Just for that one kern, he probably spent as much on tooling as I did on my house. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is, yeah. It's it's amazing. All the pallets and everything that that he has for it, and the yeah, it, it's it's a lot. And that's what a lot of people that get into machining, even just people that buy a little lathe. I'll, I've I've had a handful of guys message me, and that's the one thing as you guys probably already can tell, I like to ramble. But but uh, if people open that door and say, hey, oh, they're all nervous. And they want to talk to me about machining. You won't get me to shut up because I like, and especially I like helping new people get into the craft. But that's the first thing is they're like, I'm going to buy a milling machine. I'm going to buy a lathe. And I'm like, well, you're going to spend what you've spent again, you know, and, and, and you, you, even on cheap stuff, there's just, that's, that's the one thing I always warn people is the point of entry in machining. It, it, it's a hit. But if you commit to it, it, it's more worthwhile than just going like super cheese. You right. know, I have every, and that's one thing I'll tell people. I have the Nielsen hand planes and I have Harbor Freight tools and they all get used. It's just, you know, the Lee Nielsen hand plane would be used every day and the Harbor Freight gets brought out once every three months and yep. it serves its purpose, but you have to know where and when to spend money especially because right. you'll get bit hard yeah prioritizing your 
your uh, use cases, what you're going to use the most and what you need your accuracy at. Exactly. Well, so, and I'll, I'll go back to this again. The, the reason I brought up John, I find his, he, he gets to a spot where he might want to make a fastener that does a certain thing or looks a certain way. And he doesn't, not anything you could ever buy off the shelf. And so it's a matter of, okay, now what machine do I need to buy to make this? And I can remember when he brought, bought his first Swiss screw machine. And I, I'm going to say his knives probably have half a dozen to a dozen fasteners. And they're all, you know, could, could fit 10 of them on the, on the end of your pinky. You know, they're super small. Mm -hmm. He bought this enormous machine to make that these Swiss fasteners. Machine, yeah. And, but and it was, it was like, that's the only machine that will do this. You have to have this. And that's what makes his knives so good. But mm -hmm. your tools very similarly, you make all the, well, and, and that's, that's kind of funny is, is I've had this idea in my head and it required small fasteners and you start looking and you, you, and, 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 and it's, it's way outside of my realm of even thinking about purchasing, but you understand why he did what he did because you either find the screw and the screws nine dollars a screw and you're like well i have 10 screws in this one tool so now that's that's 90 dollars and you're like you know and that just adds to the cost but i mean he's doing it truly for quality and he can mm -hmm. really use some exotic materials but i understand exactly where he's he went with that because you're sometimes you're, there's times where you're limited by your suppliers yeah, and, he and just I've seen basically eliminates that. I've seen and and correct me if I'm wrong. I want to say in your bevel, uh, your bevel. I wanted to add another word there, but your bevel. Did you take a stock screw and modify it for the clamping me mechanism in here? Yes, and the reason why is we go. <clears throat> a lot of uh, like the the perfect example is the bolt on a double square. Uh, if if you drop any one of the, the the brand name double squares just right, it'll snap the bolt because the bolts are cast. Mm. That was one of the things is I thought about just buying the bolts off the shelf from whoever you know. Uh, I do a lot. Of, it's I use PEC exclusively now for my blades, but uh, Mark Spagnola actually reached out because his he had a Lee Valley which had broken a couple times and they, they, they were great with the, you know, customer service, sent them a new screw. But the one thing that I prided myself on is it's a modified bolt because those bolts are, I want to say a, a cap screw is like a grade 12 or it, it's higher than a grade eight. Right. And they're just, it sucks the machine. It's very hard on tooling, but as far as I know, I've made over 600 squares. I've never had a guy break a screw. And I know that some of them have been dropped pretty hard too. So that's one of those things that, it, it, yeah, I, I try to use that. Now, and the other thing too that limited me is, again, it's one of those things with the manual. Can I do it? Yes. But I don't want to spend all my time cutting screws on a manual machine. And now that I have the CNC laid, I can do that. And it's all, I was, talking to my uh cousin who was also my accountant <laughs> a small business you know that helps. um and i was saying to her we were just talking about woes in life and i was like it's time and that's what it's 
that's what this whole journey has really took. There's only so much time. And that's what I really have to do is I have to, it's not necessarily cutting corners because I refuse to do that. It's, it's just realizing what, how much I can utilize my time. And the, the CNC lathe is just one of those things. The knobs, I used to make the knobs for the squares for a batch of about 75 squares, it'd be two weeks of nights. And I would just do this operation and do this operation, do it 70 times. Boom, 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 boom. With the CNC lathe, I can knock out 120 knobs in like a, a Saturday. And they're they're better quality just because they're wow. so refined. And it's just one of those things. It's like, I know people get cranky about CNCs, but they have their place, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that's, that's a perfect example and it's return on investment and it makes me feel good that I spent the money on the lead, but it's just, it, it's, it's the time I I'm losing myself, but it's the time, you know, I, I just feel that like, I tell myself I need another CNC mill. I don't have any room to put one, but if I had a second one, I could have a second spindle running and it's, because because I tried that's why I did the protractors because I had a, a ton of time that was going to be dedicated to the surface grinder and the bridge port. Uh, there's a lot of uh, things I do on the squares that I, I it, it's a waste of time to do in the CNC like drill the end hole in the square body. It's quicker for me just to swap them out and do the handle than push the button and wait for it to wrap it down and then peck the hole and it's so for four hours a night, I would just let the CNC run and I got three of those little protractor bodies and I'm just gonna, I'm trying to pick away at them as I go through my backlog and then eventually I'll come out and I'll have, you know, 10 finished protractors and I'm also refining my processes while, while I do that. Well, I've, I share a similar desire <laughs> I've got uh, the CNC, Avid CNC router in my shop. I've got the Tormach in my shop and I've got a laser cutter. And my rule is if I'm doing handwork in the shop, I want one of those robots working the entire time I'm in there. Yep. And it's, it's an interesting, um, I started doing this when I was out at the Autodesk build space in Boston. And essentially they had work time. I'm going to say it was from, call it 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. That was the only time you could get on their machines and go because you had to be supervised and all this stuff. And they had, they had every machine known to man out there. It's amazing. And so I got in this routine of every night, I would work all night long putting together the G code and all the programming and everything else, the design side of things. And then I would get in during the day. And the second they opened those doors, I was on the spindle making it go or doing whatever. And and that allowed me to get, uh, it, it was just an interesting way. Uh, the, the contrast to that was there were tons of teams working alongside of me on completely different projects and really fascinating stuff. And they would get in in the morning and start, you know, tapping away on Fusion yeah. or uh, I, I can't remember what, what some of the programs were, but they had the big, huge five axis machines and they had the KUKA arms and all that kind of stuff. Um, and these guys would get in and, and start programming that stuff. And I'm like, you should have been doing that last night. You're just wasting well, and, time. And that's, and, and that's what I, I did. You know, I, I would sit on the couch and watch TV with my wife and, and I would have the, 
the laptop on my lap and I would just be building the fixture and figuring out. Cause like you said, as soon as I get home at about 4 PM, that, that thumb drive goes into the machine and I'm trying to set it up. But as soon as I see the spindle go and it doesn't drive itself into the vice, <laughs> I beat feet over to the bridge port and I start drilling holes and, and, you know, we, we've all been there. <laughs> At least people with CNC's have been there. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's, there's not a single CNC operator owner fill in the blank that yeah. hasn't, that hasn't watched a tool go down just miserably yeah. slow and go, well, that doesn't look like it's going to stop before it breaks. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Um, well, I know I've been asking a ton of questions. Brian, is there anything on your mind? I don't want to just own this conversation here. Yeah, well, uh, just to really go back a little bit to where you're talking about uh, your resources and whatnot, I've always felt like that uh, uh, time and money has been a limiting factor to pretty much any maker out there of their ability to make anything. Like You always just come up against this roadblock of either, oh, that's going to take way too long to do or or it's just going to cost more money than i have to get the the machining or material to to get it done is there anything that uh, you have in your mind that you really want to build but you haven't been able to pull pull the resources together either time and materials uh i do like i said i would love to to take the time to make a proper like like i don't you know, a proper infill plane. Like, I don't know if you guys know, like Ron Brees or Conrad Sauer, or, you know, these are like the, the real high end plane makers. Their, their planes command thousands of dollars. My, my, my plane commands hundreds of dollars. Theirs commands thousands of dollars. They're just really, I would love to have the time to just, for lack of a better term, fart around and figure out, you know, okay, it, the, the mouth is too tight, or if I change the angle of the, the, the frog, it, you know, it's better in figured woods. And, and, and that, that's what I would love to do. Um, the, the, the machinist nerd, me too, would love, I'd love to make a micrometer in my style. Mm. That would be fun to do. Uh, I would really love to explore. I made these little pocket levels. It was just, I... I'll, I spend a lot of time looking at uh, like 1800s, 1900s tools. And a lot of the, I, I saw a little, it was a little pocket level and it was a cast iron. And I liked the, the shape of it. And it was just, it was just, it was neat. So I ended up last year, I, I sold, uh, I think it was around 150, 200 of them. I did a big batch of them and they did well, but I want to get more into the precision levels and I want to get like ornate and uh, I would like to get like a, a fourth axis for the, the Tormach, which that, that think of just basically think of a lathe chuck that can turn in any position above a, a, a milling machine that for people that don't know what, what a fourth axis is and, and that that's, that's what I'd really, you know, those will eventually, I think, happen. It's just, I have to do the squares and stuff because those keep the lights on. I enjoy making them, but those are like the bread and butter that pay for the machines and 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 do that stuff. Uh, so when you say developing your own style or 
with the fourth axis CNC, is that going to be like an engraving type of a thing, like a, well, a Ginny Bauer type type style? In, in a way, but but like like on a machinist level, it's basically a, a pedestal, and then the vial sits in a tube. I'm giving away too much, but uh, the the tube. I would like to to do intricate cuts in the tube that the vial sits in, and things like that. Maybe okay. skeletonize that to to just make it look more ridiculous and ornate. Yeah. So, uh, of your speaking of your style, I saw you post a picture in the Wood Whisperer Guild of something that you're is that something you're prototyping now? I made that. I made that in the wintertime. That was, uh, that was, um, I don't think I have it here. I've always found it general, I think was the original. It's, it's just, it's this square protractor. It's a piece of like three by two and a half, just sheet metal for lack. It's like, it's not even a 16 thick and it has 180 degrees on it. And then it has a leg that you adjust and that's how you set your angle, that protractor. And I always liked them, but they're always cheats. And there's really, there's like the ridiculous machinist protractors that you can set to the minute or the second of the degree, but there's really no woodworking one. Well, what I did is I made one in that vein of the general, but I made it brass and then I dovetailed a ledge on it because that's the thing with the sheet metal is, is there's no bearing surface for you to register off of and that was the the thought there and it also has a depth gauge feature because a lot of those protractors did so as great can attest my stuff is not lightweight and at first it really wasn't designed to be heavyweight but every time i go to a show when someone takes a tool i carry this ridiculous case around that has my tools because People, the people would rather see the tools, you know, than me being like, I don't have anything on me. So I'll, I'll bring a case with like a, a bevel and a block plane. And every time someone picks that up, they go, oh, they, they appreciate yeah. that heft. So I, I don't, you know, it's skeleton, the protractor skeletonized. But the one thing I was asking about in the, the Wood Whisperer Guild was, is the thickness of the blade. Because I didn't realize that some guys, when they set up their bevel gauge, they'll slip that bar through the bevel gauge and line up their blade. Well, my bevel gauge is, is the, the blade on it's really thick. It's almost 330 seconds where most of them, like the chinois and stuff like that are anywhere from six, you know, a 16th to just a little under, they're very thin, which they work fine for what they are. But the one thing I wanted is, is I wanted to see Chris Vesper makes I feel the best bevel in the, the world. Mine are good. Mine are probably comparable, but he makes 500 for my 20. So he gets that. I feel he gets that title, but I didn't know the thickness of his blade. So I wanted to make sure if I, the people that are going to be buying this protractor are more than likely going to have either his bevel or mine or a, a comparable. So I'm trying to find how thin I can go with that blade to allow that to happen, but then keep it as stout as possible. Because the, the the blade on the general is is only like forty thousandths. It's like three sixty fourths of an inch. It's 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 sheet yeah. metal. And it's fine because it's a ten dollar protractor, but that's the other thing. If you're gonna 
pay this money for this tool. I want it to be rugged and elegant and just, you know, quality. Yeah. So, uh, so two things, one, your stuff is heavy, uh, which is a good thing for me being a woodworker. I'll tell you the planes that I have that have a lot of weight to them, uh, cut better just because it reduces the chatter slides smoother. Once you get that momentum going, uh, it just slices off. But why I brought up the, the post of, that you posted in the Wood Whisper uh, Guild is as I was scrolling through uh, uh, Facebook and I saw that post, I didn't see the name right away. But as soon as I saw the picture of the dovetails in there, I was like, huh, that looks like a Tony Rollo style because of the hand plane uh, dovetail. And I was wondering if that was an intentional thing that you're trying to carry through all your stuff. That uh, machined metal dovetail. I mean, metal dovetails are cool. <laughs> no matter how, yeah. whenever yeah. anybody sees metal dovetails, you just and, and I I I do want to that I do want that to be part. I actually the the precision level I want to do. I want to incorporate that as well, just because dovetails are cool. But uh, yeah, I I tr you you do see. I think I use you know certain radiuses and everything. And like I said, I I don't I don't feel I have a style that I'm going after. I just think it's subconscious. It's how you do things. So you know? it, it has a lot of more function to it, but you like how it looks. Is yes. kind of how that came about. Got it. Yeah, I want yeah. to be because that's the one thing I I I, I battle a lot in my head tool wise is I try, I want my tools to be elegant, but I also want them to be simple. I only want them to do maybe one or like, it seems like now, you, you know, certain tool makers, their stuff is like Ron Popeil, you know, there's like, it just does everything. And I try to fight that gimmicky-ness. I don't even know if that's a proper word, but I, I don't like gimmicks in my tools personally. So I try to, the, the, the stuff that I put into them, I want it to be, I, I, I just don't want it to be wasted. You know, I don't want to say, oh, it'll do X, Y, and Z when 99.9% .9 of the people are only going to use X. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the tools that I have that I bought because I thought, oh, I'm going to buy this because it does everything. I won't need to do it. Oh, well, it and I have, does... I, have, I have the same stuff, you know, I, ha yeah. I have all that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. Oh, well, that looks cool. But those tools only do the one thing really well, and only sort of do the things, other things. And so then I end up buying the tools to do the other things. And so now I, I, if if someone says, "Oh, look at all these ten things it does," I'm just like, "Okay, see you later." I'm still gonna go buy the individual uh, tools just because I don't want to to fall into that gimmick because it'll yeah, do I the just, one I, thing good, but not all ten. I want my tools to just do the thing that they're meant for really well and a lot of people have used coin the use the term heirloom tools and that's what i like to to think of them as is i want you know i i actually i it was it was it was a little weird i had a guy message me out of the blue on instagram and he was asking me questions about he had one of my block planes and he's like oh you know do you offer blades and this and that? And I'm just like, I, I've only made just over a hundred block planes. So I pretty much remember, you know, I, I'm not, I don't, I remember great because the number seven, seven's easy to remember, but I just, this guy's name, he ended up buying the plane from an estate sale 
from a guy who passed away. And I'm like, my stuff has been around long enough to turn into this. Now it's, you know, like uh, there's this website, Jim Bodie or Jim Bode. And he sell this, they sell like these, they'll sell everything from Bridge City to like the older Bridge City tools to tools from like the 1700s. And it's all like high dollar stuff. And I, I hope, you know, I, this is, this is a little arrogant of me, but I hope someday that, you know, one of my squares or something will pop up and I'll be like, Oh, look at that. You know, <laughs> I could be charging triple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You need to just put out a fake story about yourself, Tony. You know, his, his hands were, you know, whatever, crippled by a blueberry pie incident <laughs> and he can't make squares anymore. <laughs> but, oh, uh, no, I, I mean, uh, honestly, Tony, that was, that was one of my thoughts. Like I said, when, when I bought the square in the first batch, number seven, I, I like to think, yeah, I'm a single digit, you know, whoo, there's not many of us out there. Um, and I, I think all of mine are, are the number sevens and you even sent me a message when you were putting out the pocket levels and, yes, yep. and, and asked if I wanted number seven yep. and, um, I, and, and I felt terrible. I'm like, I just, oh, I don't it's think fine. I use one. And, 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 uh, you know, and I guess my reverence for the tools is I want to buy them and use them. And, and the, I would tell you the bevel I haven't used much and it's only because I haven't done anything with any angles on it. And I feel, I feel like I need to do some things with good angles on them, but, but yeah, the, the, the pocket level, I was like, I should, I should just get it because it's number seven, but it's like, <laughs> no, I, I feel like there's somebody else on that list. Like you said, you know, there's a wait list for this stuff. And it's like, let somebody who's going to use it, buy it. And I'm not going to take that spot in line. There may be some day where I kick myself in the pants, uh, for, for bypassing that, but we'll see. You could buy it from that high end website later on. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah I could maybe that'll, buy it for I'll 6, send you the link. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody will watch this podcast and go, oh, <laughs> I've got number seven and I'm holding it for ransom. <laughs> Start sending you messages. <laughs> yeah. If I get a bunch of Instagram DMs with the number seven, uh, pocket level i'll know <laughs> where they're coming from i have uh, i have one more question for you that's might be kind of a controversial question metric imperial or cubits what's your favorite <laughs> um it's all decimal to me uh and and i know that's kind of a cop-out but uh, most of my machinist career we would get prints in both and it just not cubits but <laughs> um but it, it just turns into decimals. I mean, obviously, for me, it gets turned into imperial, but it's just, for me, it's not that hard to work with. I, I've been around it enough that I know, you know, six millimeters is close to quarter in. You know, I know that stuff. So I I am, a, I believe that metric is better just because of the whole base 10 thing. But, you know, it, it's just ingrained in me, the whole imperial thing, so. So on your day-to-day -day working, you're working in Imperial. Yeah. And all like your, I said, all your though, machines are set that way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's all, it's, but it's all decimals, you know, like quarter inches, 0.25. And, What's 764? Uh, Do you have that one in your head? 764? No, I don't. <laughs> didn't know you are going to get a math uh, test. Here, I, did you? No, uh, I, I only asked that. like 109? You, you might be right. I think it's like right. 109 something. 
I just know when I ask Tom, I'm like, oh yeah, I think that's 764. He will kick out those decimals for everything yeah. down to the 64th. <laughs> it just blows yeah. my mind. But that that tells you how long he's been doing doing those. But I fractions. have I have seen an uptick in in people from the states that are buying metric scales for their for their uh, squares. And and I I do offer imperial metric combination squares, but there's a lot of guys that are just buying just metric, and I think it's festival is what's that yeah. was push them is yeah. is a lot of the stuff festival is in metric. And... So it's one oh nine three. So nice work, Tony. <laughs> well, awesome. Uh, I guess I'll I'll just kind of wrap up if that's all right. Yeah. And before we hang up, is there anything you want to plug, Tony? Do you have a, oh, a yeah. website you want to go to? Um, uh, www.hillviewtool, H-I-L-L-V-I-E, excuse me, E-W, tool.com is, is my website. And uh, hillview underscore WM on Instagram. And then uh, you can just search Hillview Tool or Hillview Wood Metal on Facebook. That's Instagram is where I'm most active on. Cool. And we'll have all those links on the Maker's Quest podcast uh, website. Well, Tony, I want to say a huge thanks. I know uh, we had to reschedule once before, and I apologize for that when I had to bug out uh, and go out of town. Uh, but really appreciate you being with us tonight and talking about your uh, journey with tool making and some of the background with your machining. It's always fascinating to talk to someone who's such a wonderful maker like yourself. Thank you. It was, it was, I was looking forward to this because I figured I was going to get asked different questions and, and, I, and I, I'm glad I, it, it was, it was what I expected and I'm, I'm happy about that. Thanks for having me on. Good. Thank you for coming. Awesome. Well, uh, you can check out Tony Rouleau's website at hillviewtool.com. You can catch Tony on Instagram where he's most active at hillview underscore WM on Instagram. And uh, on Facebook, you can search Hillview Wood and Metal. Did I get that right? Yep. Or Hillview Tool. So thanks again. And I am Greg Porter. You can catch my YouTube channel at Greg's Garage or Skyscraper Guitars. And I'm Brian Benham. And you can find me just searching Brian Benham. Thanks for listening.